hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to Radius of Reason, uh, a podcast about politics, philosophy, everything in between, including existential dread. I'm joined by my very handsome and fashionable co-host, Yvonne. Hello. Hello. My name is Andre. Uh, This is episode 23, where we are going to get into the ethics of the death penalty. Um, Yvonne, let me ask you a question. If your hypothetical child is killed by a hypothetical man, would you want that man to be put to death? I probably would, yeah. I think, um, you know, you can't possibly imagine those emotions, you know, but I would think I would in that moment want to kill that person. Um, But if you're really asking me, do I want to construct a society where we do that, um, where you've got actually a lot more nuance, where we actually have to prove that that person killed my child, then that's a different story. Now, what if the person who killed your hypothetical child at the time of murder is a child themselves or is not fully developed. How would you feel about the death penalty under those circumstances? Well, I know you want to allude to the fact that uh, the brain's not developed until you're about 25, Mm -hmm. but I'm going to go ahead and say it doesn't matter because we don't have free will. (laughs) <laughs> at age 18 or 25 so well that actually poses a really interesting question mm. where if we have no free will and we commit these atrocious crimes i mean it, is it then in fact ethical to to execute somebody for those crimes if they're acting based off of a series of circumstances that they never had any control over well i could ask you the reverse right is it unethical if there's no free will interesting can you expand on mm. that what I mean is there you, you could make the case that there's no ethical framework at all in the absence of free will when it comes to human interactions. Uh, I'm not advocating for that. I mean, we, we've had a discussion on free will before. Um, I think you can still have a concept of morality, uh, and you should and you must if you want to exist in a society. Um, and we naturally will because we're humans who which have millions of years of evolutionary history behind this. <laughs> but I, I, I think it does in general just bring up a lot of interesting philosophical questions. Um, but we, we can we can explore that a little bit further. Well, the philosophical questions are, are pretty damn interesting because, I mean, really on the surface of it, the death penalty, which is, is legal in the United States, um, it's not a, a major issue that is continuously front of mind for this country. Like there are issues that we're facing as a society that you could argue are far more pressing than the death penalty. And really in terms of how many people are actually executed in the U S the numbers aren't really that high. So in 2022, about 18 people were executed in the U S and really since 1976, around 1500 people have died by execution. Uh, we, we've changed around the ways in which we've actually carried out capital punishment in this country. Um, so in 2022, 100% of those executions were done by lethal injection, which is said to be a far more humane approach to, to executing somebody convicted of a crime. I'm so I'm imagining this is more humane when compared to like dumping somebody into like a gladiator ring and making them fight a, a lion. I just wanted to list Although, off a few quick... That would be badass, but yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, we could talk yeah. about the Romans as well. But <laughs> just a couple interesting statistics I thought you would like, um, as the, the sickle you are. Uh, out of those executed last year, 100% were men, uh, 56% were white, 28% were black, 6% were Asian, Hispanic... And Native American, and all of the states that conducted the executions were all Republican states. So Oklahoma, Texas, Arizona, Alabama, Missouri, and Mississippi. Well, the first thing that stands out, it's like anyone who is still arguing about gender differences, <laughs> you know, this is this hits you right in the face. Uh, or, so, or uh, actually, uh, potentially even more of an instance of cognitive dissonance. Most of the mm-hmm. states where there is an opposition to an abortion 
uh, on the basis of life is sacred, indeed are still carrying out capital punishment. Now, mm. those philosophical dilemmas yeah. I was putting you in earlier, those are all relevant things here. So in the state of Missouri uh, this past month, um, a man named Michael Tsias was executed uh, June 6th for a crime that he committed in the year 2000 when he was just 19 years old. He was trying to break his buddy out of jail. He freaked out and killed two security guards. The argument was made by the Bar Association that, first of all, you can't really hold somebody accountable for a crime they committed, to your point, before their brain is fully developed. So uh, Michael Tsias was 19 years old uh, when he committed a crime in the year 2000. He freaked out and shot two prison guards as he was trying to bust his buddy out of jail. And the American Bar Association actually said that, hey, this case shouldn't be carried out to the death penalty because of the lack of full maturation and development of the brain at the time the crime was committed. Missouri also doesn't have a great track record with this. Uh, in 2021, Missouri executed a man named Ernest Johnson, uh, who also killed a convenience store attendant, I believe. But it was proven that he was actually intellectually disabled after multiple rounds of testing. But the state still carried out the death penalty. So it's, I think, a serious burden of an ethical dilemma we're facing as a country. Are these sorts of things bringing us to a better civilization? Do you think, Livon, that the death penalty is actually reducing crime? Well, it doesn't matter what I think, to be, to be quite honest. But what the studies show, what the evidence seems to show, is it doesn't really have a, a substantial impact. Um, and so, you know, that's kind of what you would hope if you were in favor of the death penalty is that you, you want it to prevent further crimes. You want to prevent recidivism rates um, from increasing. So if that's not happening, then you're, you're really left wondering like why anyone would support it when we bring up the other details as well. Um, I, I don't know if you want to get into that right now. Let's get into it. Yeah, so the cost to the state is very counterintuitively higher um, because of the legal fees associated with a death penalty. So it's actually cheaper to simply keep someone in prison for life. Um, that was astonishing. I never thought that would be the case, but lawyers have done well for themselves in this country. That's for sure. So the other major consideration is wrongful con convictions, right? Um, we've had numerous cases throughout history where new genetic evidence comes forth and reveals that actually this person who is on death row is innocent. Um, mm -hmm. How do you put a price on that? Like, I'm, I, I'll ask you, Andre, like, do we even have any philosophical value system where we could put a price on a mistake of that gravity of such gravity? I, I mean, no, absolutely not. And I, and I think the dilemma is quite fucked anyways, in instances when somebody is wrongfully convicted and serves out the majority of a life sentence only to be discovered you know, 30 or 40 years into their life sentence that I actually know like this new evidence has proven you completely in innocent. And I think it's especially alarming as new technologies emerge that help um, reevaluate certain crime scenes and, and bring about new elements of evidence that might completely prove somebody's innocence. So from a philosophical basis, and this is a point that the, the American Civil Liberties Union argues in their position against capital punishment is that executing somebody completely decimates any chance that newly surfaced evidence could prove somebody innocent. And it completely warps the idea of justice, that it's, it's almost a continuous process. It, it's a it's kind of a, a breathing approach, a living approach to, to a system as opposed to a terminal approach. And when 
you execute somebody for a crime, and then five years later, a new form of ge- genetic testing emerges, which is precisely what started happening in the 70s and mm-hmm. 80s, yeah. um, that exonerated many uh, previously convicted individuals. You, you warp the process of justice. Now, let me and, ask you this, if I, if I can interject. So mm-hmm. there's new technologies that are being talked about right now where we are starting to read brain patterns or convert like images of brain patterns to actual like thoughts uh, or meaningful, you know, text or something to represent those brain patterns. If in the, let's say in the next 15, 20 years, we have technology where we can literally mind read. First of all, I mean, I guess ignoring all the privacy issues associated with the with that. Do you think if somebody was like absolutely found guilty, like no doubt this technology is, you know, be, becomes well attested to and um, everyone's like fully convinced by it. If, if we found out someone like, um, I don't want to use Jared, the subway guy, but you know, I mean, if someone's committed, I mean, he's committed heinous crimes and, uh, you know, I, I don't know what the, the punish, punishments are for, for the crimes he committed. I don't, I don't, I don't even want to mention it on the podcast. I mean, plenty of people are aware, but with something like that and perhaps Wait, someone hold up. who's done sub, something sub, subway far- guy did something bad. Wait, are you serious? You don't yeah, know this? I'm fucking, I'm fucking I know, oh, of course okay. I know. This. <laughs> oh god, you got me. <laughs> you got me. I mean, it's I, I don't know how well, how widely known it is to be honest. But like, let's imagine someone did something like ten times worse, right? Um, would that person, if you know, convicted through this new uh, process where we have this, you know irrefutable evidence from this new technology mm-hmm. would you consider that um okay like would that be ethical in your mind yeah yeah and, and i i think this is actually something that we are going to have to face down with ai emerging right you know we, we've had two episodes on the mm-hmm. impact that ai is going to have on uh, our culture our politics our work life and you know that that's a very interesting premise where if you have undeniable proof, which is something that we've always struggled to, with because testing is always going to be flawed. Effectively generate and and emphasize the truth yes maybe however i think that these tools are always going to be inherently flawed as we're seeing right now with uh some of the text generated ais that might have a certain political bias or you know what if you, you do develop like some ai that can detect the finest nuances of cellular data at a crime scene but it's like biased against republicans so but 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 you would in theory if if it was 100% certain right let's say you saw this person with your own eyes commit these crimes right. then you 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 would be for the death penalty in that case i don't think so because i think that goes back to c- capital punishment doesn't necess- uh, the, the the position against capital punishment doesn't necessarily try to make the argument that everybody is innocent of the crimes they committed uh somebody that shoots up a school is had evidently committed a crime uh the uh, the position against capital punishment argues that justice can be carried out in alternative matters so i guess i was asking your opinion though your opinion per se on that yeah yeah like if you were king of the world you would you would or wouldn't would i have unlimited resources as king uh Sure. Yeah, let's go with that. I think in that case, I would not. I, I think that if I had the capacity and the support of society to 
invest in rehabilitative justice. I think that's the approach you would take. Specifically because you have... But they were ultimately guided by varying factors in their life that should it lead to their death just because they committed something and how much responsibility do we have as a collective tribe to, to use your language in that mm -hmm. individual's ultimate decision to perform the criminal act you know i think that's interesting because i i guess regardless of whether you believe in free will or not and regardless of what your views are on say behavioral genetics and you know is, is it 50 50 you know nurture versus nature um there's still an argument to be made that you know our society can predispose certain individuals right to more criminal behavior um there's actually so i was looking at the evolutionary psych literature on this <laughs> and it seems like yeah naturally <laughs> so it seems like uh one of the key variables for a society to accept the death penalty is in fact resource scarcity um and so societies where resources are more scarce are far more willing to execute people uh, because it's just there's less give right um and people you know reoffending on their crimes which may include I don't, I don't know you know maybe this is remnants again of our ancestral past but maybe someone who's uh, committing theft of highly valued resources if you've got very limited resources that's not going to fly especially when you've got uh, an omnipotent andre as as the leader of the tribe so with unlimited resources but well that's actually a really interesting point you bring up because the countries that have the death penalty still legalized and this puts the united states in a very interesting cohort of countries the likes of north korea iran <laughs> saudi arabia and china all still have the death penalty as a legal form of punishment and it's kind of interesting because in, in the in the far more extensive list of countries, I, of course, I nitpicked here to, to make a point, almost no close U.S. allies have the death penalty still in place. And in fact, the countries that we harp on the most on a geopolitical basis are the ones that we share this little quirk of our justice system with. A lot of these countries are also subject to massive amounts of sanctions and international isolation. So it speaks to what you're talking about. North Korea and Iran, they're basically pariah states. So what do you think is up with the U.S., a country of unlimited resources, bountiful potential, the country that gave you Elon Musk, and I guess Musk is South African, but Tesla, Amazon, the iPhone still has this very terrible form of, of, of uh, justice in place. Okay, let me try to take you through the logic that's flowing in my beautiful mind. So U.S. is the melting pot, right? Mm -hmm. Well, we've, we've got people of so many different backgrounds, and I think that heightens tribalism in certain contexts, uh, perhaps law enforcement. Uh, in fact, we've got evidence of well, I haven't honestly dug into this a whole lot, but um, systemic injustice in the law enforcement industry. Uh, I think most people would agree that there's um, there are issues with the law enforcement sector. <laughs> so, um, but I think it could be because we, again, we just have such a high level of diversity that it's easier for us to prescribe such a severe crime to someone who's like already not in our tribe, right? Like, oh, we did you a favor. You came here, even though we killed all the Native Americans, whatever. But yeah, let's let's ignore that part for a second. Um, you, you know, you, you are enjoying the fruits of our labor. You come here and commit a crime. Well, you got to go, you know. Um, so I don't know. That's one theory. I mean, obviously have no evidence to back this up 
whatsoever, but that's why we're podcasters. So, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. And I kind of wanted to, to go back to a point that we inadvertently stumbled into earlier. Um, Mm -hmm. this question over how much maybe collective responsibility we have as a country to maybe uh, in the the ultimate act of violence or crime that's inflicted which is then punished by influence somebody to behave in a criminal way i think a really good example of this is the presence of lead in in housing where if you grow up in an environment where there's a lot of lead in your pipes lead in your drinking water it, it steadily erodes elements of your brain to the point where you might behave in a more violent manner right this is very very much not the fault of somebody who's born into an apartment complex that's not effectively lead abated, right? That's very much the responsibility of landlords and then at a higher level of policy, which doesn't effectively regulate lead abatement. Mm -hmm. So if somebody's born in that kind of environment, if somebody goes completely berserk when they're 25 because their brain is absolutely rotted from all the lead exposure they had, and they end up killing somebody, is that something that is everybody's responsibility because we allow that to carry on and to happen, which ultimately results in the said murder. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, it is a collective responsibility, but here, you know, in the States, it's a very individualistic society. And so people aren't taking mm -hmm. responsibility at a collective level, right? Um, or at least most people mm -hmm. aren't. Um, but I, to piggyback on what you're saying, I think it's very, this is a very important point because we know things like income inequality, um, that can directly, you know, trace you to higher levels of criminal behavior, right? By simply growing up in a poor neighborhood, it's not just lead, right? It's just simply being poor, um, which may have to do for, with maybe may the result of many reasons, right? Um, it could be that, you know, your just family isn't very hardworking or very smart. It could also be um, many environmental factors and historical inertia that has led you to come to, you know, be in this particular neighborhood at this particular time. Um, and so those things aren't fair, but they clearly predispose people to higher rates of criminal behavior. They force people in some sense. This is well, well attested to in social science. Um, one of the few things maybe we can be confident in when it comes to social science findings. Um, and so it, it really illustrates the massive ethical dilemma here, right? Of the disadvantages of growing up in a place that may end up forcing you to commit crimes. We don't want to talk about that. We don't want to admit that maybe we're kind of lucky, right? That we mm -hmm. are surrounded by people that um, shield us, you know, maybe from criminal behavior or environments that shield us right like we 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 don't want to we if if we don't commit crimes we want to say it's because we're good right <laughs> but if other people are committing crimes i guess i don't know where i'm going with that we say they're bad so we're consistent <laughs> we're consistent with that but i had a point I had a point. There, I think my man just made a point for white privilege. <laughs> oops. Um, oops. Yeah. But I do think that you actually inadvertently also underscored another element of our criminal justice system in that those who can also afford a very, very successful defense will likely not face the same consequences as somebody that is poor. I'm very curious th 
out of the 18 people who were executed in the United States last year, how many of them were billionaires? How many of them owned multiple properties or had generational wealth? I'm not going to go on a limb and say none of them, but I assume that statistically <laughs> speaking, we could probably make a determinant that the very wealthy were not along those among those who were executed in 2022. And is that a question of, oh yeah, the rich just don't commit crimes? I mean, fuck no. Like we, we have the ever pervasive Jeffrey Epstein story, which continuously gets unraveled in this country and nobody's been put to death over that. And I think far more abrasive and far more shocking is the fate of the Sackler family that flooded this country with opioids and they had to pay like a customary fine. Yeah, it was high, but it was nowhere near the amount of uh, money they caused and damages to families and generations of Americans. Not a single one of them is being put to death. So I think that already we're stumbling into something here that by basis of class division, the death penalty is unethical because it's not being carried out in a similar scaled fashion based off of somebody's socioeconomic background. Well, I think this also kind of touches on the first one of the first points that we made. When you talk about an ethical framework and a philosophical system for the values that we have and how we ascribe value to certain acts uh, or events, Mm-hmm. Um, like billionaire, you know, CEO of oil company knowingly, you know, cheaps out on a cap for an oil well, which leads to billions of dollars of, you know, economic destruction, habitat loss, etc. Millions of, you know, sea life, animal life ruined. Is that person more or less deserving of execution than, you know, some serial killer slash pedophile, right? Or, I mean, not even a serial killer or pedophile, or maybe a 19-year-old kid who kills two guards at a prison and trying to break his friend out, right? Something very real that we, we referenced. Our Mm -hmm. legal system determined that the death penalty in that instance was deserving. But in instances, again, of, let's say, the Sackler family, which knowingly uh, contributed to the, uh, the opioid crisis, which continues to rock this country today, our justice system did not put them to death. And the argument that somehow if they weren't directly pulling the trigger or if they weren't maybe looking their victims in the eye when they were committing this crime, that makes them legally... And that puts them legally in a better position than the 19-year-old killing the two guards. Which, to me, I I think that... that, I mean, the the math doesn't add up to that. Yeah, I mean... There's also, you know, this other point about empathy, where it's easier for us to empathize with, like, let's say a single individual that gets killed, Uh, you know, maybe some wacky dude, you know, kills a little girl, right? Like that, like, you know, death penalty to that guy. But you start to scale up the numbers, you know. And like some guy who's killed like a hundred, you know, sixty-year-olds. You know, you know what I mean. Like, there's an issue of scale as well, and how empathy works in human beings, which creates again another ethical dilemma. And then, you know, this also brings up another point I haven't thought about too much, but like media pressure, right, and social pressure that judges, you know, et cetera, have to resist when trying to make these decisions. Um, I don't know. There's just a, you just see how muddy the water is, right? Just, just discussing this at a very, I mean, just a basic level. We've been talking about it for what, half an hour or so. I mean, you already see mm-hmm. again, just how ill-equipped 
we are from a philosophical standpoint and how how much of our justice system and value judgments are simply inertia from the past and kind of human instinct that's not fully thought through, right? It's more like system one thinking as opposed to like a more deliberate system two, uh, well thought out, conscious, you know, objective attempt to provide the most fair and effective, you know, punishments or, or whatever. Well, and I think that has a really interesting implication for the arguments of systemic racism of the justice system in that, especially in what are you woke that had a legacy? (laughs) We got a woke person over here, guys. Well, you know, woke right there. Uh, let's get, let's get our production staff to, uh, (laughs) to, to cut this, um, we got woke on aisle nine. But I mean, uh, it, it, I think that we just came to the philosophical conclusion that supports this woke position. <laughs> I, I think that especially you call in me? states that have a historic uh, legacy, uh, a, a legacy of racism, of institutionalized racism in the Jim Crow era in the American South, where a lot of these death penalties are being carried out, I imagine there is still a high level of residual, maybe underlying um, preconceived notions about black Americans. And I think that does impact how a jury might see a black man versus a white man being tried for a similar crime. I mean, is there a delay or am I just saying very profound things? There was a bit of a delay, Uh, but I, from what I've gathered uh, coming in and out, I think I completely agree with everything you said. So, (laughs) well, let's wrap up the podcast. It sounded hella woke. Figured it out. Yeah, ain't nothing wrong with that. Um, (laughs) Ain't nothing wrong with that. I, I, I do want to ask you just just to get your opinion. Like, let's maybe take a step back now and let's consider um, like the death penalty from like an evolutionary standpoint and like what maybe took place in the ancestral environment. Like, what what do you think people did back then when someone really like you know crossed the line? They they probably like slept with somebody's wife. Or, or uh, like, stole somebody's uh, food supplies or something. But no, I mean, I, I think it. I think the evolution of the justice system. You don't even have to go back to, uh, like the caveman eras, which are like our our deep ancestors. I think you just need to look at the justice system as an evolution of human thought, right? The the presumption of innocence. The, um the the right to a fair trial a trial by your peers these are all things that have stemmed from uh, the evolution of human thought right in this country in particular because it's heavily influenced by um, Western Europe you know Enlightenment thinking went into play in shaping some of our uh, legal institutions right I'm not that familiar with with the global legal theory but I'm sure every civilization has their process of evolution. I think the death penalty has always been the knee-jerk reaction to crime, right? Hammurabi's code of law, eye for an eye, draconian measures, where the one guaranteed form of punishment you could dish out onto somebody is death, because death is ultimately speaking what everybody's afraid of. So I think maybe less so that there was like um, a, a original sin and like there was like a, a single evolutionary framework for why there was a death penalty. I just think it's always been a very simple way to secure some level of peace in a tribal setting, for instance, right? You didn't have time to sit down and ponder um, the the finer notions of what is innocence and what is guilt. If somebody took your shit, you, you had to kill them because that was the only way to do it. Do you think I'm on the mark here? Yeah, uh, more or less. Um, I was also going to mention, you know, the notion of banishment from the tribe and how, hmm. 
you know, it, it kind of um, wipes your hands clean because it, it is effectively a death sentence, right? In the prehistoric times to just banish someone from your tribe. Um, we, we need other humans to survive, right? And so uh, I'm just trying to think through, you know, the implications of, you know, just executing someone like in the middle of the day, everybody out there watching the beheading, for example, um, what kind of psychological impact that would have. But I guess they're used to uh, blood, right, in those times. Um, yeah, no, it's just it's just kind of fascinating to think about how they would have, how, how differently it would have been handled. It sounds like this particular aspect um, you know, a lot of things have changed, right, from our ancestral environment and our instinctive behaviors. But this is one thing where I feel like that instinct to kill and the eye for an eye thing has, has uh, prevailed. So despite uh, society's best efforts to uh, to distance ourselves from our past. But I mean, do you think it's an easier solution? Do you, do you think that the presence of a death penalty kind of absolves us of any difficult conversations around how our current tribes are, are, are structured? Well, I, I think at a fundamental level, you know, it's the most primitive response in any animals, right? Oh, you, you do something... To me, like, you know, this happens between, you know, two uh, tigers, right? You know, um, maybe the t one of the tigers steals its food or something. <laughs> I don't know what tigers, I don't know what kind of dilemmas tigers <laughs> get into. Tiger crime! But, I mean, it's it, it's kind of like, it's, a, it's, it's pretty much like a fight to the death at that point. Like, you know, the guy's going to go in for, for revenge and potentially kill the tiger that stole from him. Let's just say in theory, again, like all the, pra mm -hmm. although wildlife experts are just like cringing and just like just losing their minds at what I'm saying right now. But um, actually nobody's listening. So we're, <laughs> we're, we're all right. But uh, so I, I, I think like to, to sort of answer your question, I think because it's so primitive, right? This idea of like revenge and just getting back at someone for something heinous they did. Um I think yeah, it does satisfy us at a again at a very primitive level, in in a way that reason can't right. In a way that telling someone, well, this person didn't have free will; they're not really responsible for this, or you know, they they grew up in a poor neighborhood. It's okay. It's like no, like that's not gonna that's not gonna cut it right. If they did something to your kid or or whatever, um, so. Yeah, I, th I think it's a it's a very primitive but urge that we try to s satisfy. But that's a really interesting thing because many countries have actually instituted a system by which if somebody kills your kid, no, like the criminal will not be executed. So even if you're desiring that form of retribution, the the system will not execute somebody even if they committed a very, very atrocious crime. And what I had written down in my notes was the example of Norway um, with the, um, the, the case of Anders Breivik, right? He's the guy who shot up a youth retreat, killed 70 people, the, a lot of them children, and he will not be put to death because... Norway has codified it as such that capital punishment is illegal. So as a country, they've determined that that is not how they will treat their criminals. Even though I imagine out of the 70 people that died at his hand, many of their relatives would probably have wanted to see him hang. And instead, not only does he get to walk away with his life, but he's also living in, in circumstances in a Norwegian prison which are far better than like the majority of apartments in the United States of America with the services and amenities offered. So the they, I mean, their philosophical approach here is that, hey, you know, justice is restorative, that we're going to find a way to even 
out the scales that that he shifted in, in a far darker direction. But looking at that is also interesting because is it justice if somebody can commit such a horrible crime and then continue to live a, a life with a reasonable standard of quality to it? In my opinion, the answer is pretty obvious. It's like, no, that's not, it's not justice at all. I would be fucking furious, right? If one of the victims, one of uh, Revik's vic- victims was someone that I knew, right? For example. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't speak to Norwegian ethics, you know, maybe I'm just not sophisticated enough to understand their logic, but, uh, seems pretty absurd to me. We should get a Norwegian on the show. Yeah. Explain that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you social Democrat explain that. <laughs> I, I, I want to, so, okay. Maybe before we, we go on to the next topic. Please hit the subscribe button, follow, like, comment, and the inevitable Twitter plug from Andre. Radius underscore of, if we get 10 Twitter followers, Yvonne will do the next episode topless. Right. So we'll probably get only nine, right? Because people love the show, but they don't necessarily (laughs) want to see that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Some finely defined pectorals. Well, speaking of incentives, uh, how about how about this? What are some solutions to disincentivize heinous criminal behavior um, that don't involve capital punishment? Right? Do you have any ideas? I think um, I think maybe our minds have been far too warped by the American system because it really does seem like at least the prospect of a death penalty gives a sense of like, ah, oh, there could be some justice out there, um, especially for some of these like more violent circumstances uh, we've seen happen in the past year or two with rampant shootings shooting up of elementary schools, shooting up of grocery stores, public spaces, concert venues, and whatnot. I think that life imprisonment is probably the best bet we have now, too. I do feel that continued subsidies from the taxpayers to keep some of these motherfuckers fed is probably also uh, a difficult pill to swallow. But from a standpoint, if we do treat crime as a symptom of greater societal problems, I think that we need to implement as many things as possible to start eliminating the root causes of collective responsibility for these sorts of things. I mean, we've talked about something as simple as like removing lead from, from, from homes, things along those lines you were saying yeah no i i i think one thing that you mentioned and one thing i think we all have to realize is we have to accept that there are going to be the shittiest people that don't deserve anything they don't deserve prison food right but they're going to get that benefit because we are living in a society with all this nuance and complexity. And we also know that the justice system is imperfect and there's going to be people in there that may be innocent, uh, may have hope for them, you know, for them. Um, so we just kind of have to accept that we, there are going to be individual cases where we just take an L right. Like some people are just going to get more than they deserve right? Even these absolutely like vile people. But it's kind of the same argument, like, you know, why have any safety net in a society, right? Like you're going to have people that take advantage, but you do it for the people that are going to benefit that actually need it, right? Um, at least that's the hope. And that's the logic. Um, but 
Yeah, I mean, I so, so with to uh, answer my own with the it, fact that yeah. Sorry, go ahead. So, so uh, yeah, I was gonna say with with the fact that only ten to eighteen people are are executed on average every year in this country. Is it a high enough rate that the problem needs to even be addressed for, from like a, a standpoint of ethics? I mean, are enough people being executed to warrant a reevaluation of our of our approach to capital punishment? I think uh, given the existential risks that we have, uh, AI, population collapse, climate change, nuclear war, whatever, uh, pandemics. I think you, it, the it's second Trump definitely presidency. not possible. Yeah. Right, the second Trump presidency. It's not, uh, it's not possible, in my opinion, to argue that capital punishment is the forefront of uh, where our attention should be. But I think it does touch on a wider... Um, on, on the wider issues of ethics and justice in our societies. And also, again, like this question of how, how do we disincentivize crime, right? Without putting people behind bars or killing them. Is there a better way we can do this? When we know that there are a lot of em environmental factors that impact these outcomes. Uh, and that's the interesting thing, right? Like we've, we've discussed restorative justice. Maybe that's something that we'll explore, explore later on in more depth. Um, I think if you address things like, you know, education, income inequality, then you're making huge progress, right? Um, you don't want to get to the point where you have to even decide whether someone needs to be executed. Um, you want to, yeah, I mean, I think it's good that there's only 18 people on death row. Although if you look at all the crimes that are committed, like there's probably plenty of crimes where you'd think, okay, maybe that person should be executed. So mm -hmm. maybe that statistic isn't necessarily representative of uh, where we want to be in society, but it could be worse for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think there is actually something pretty interesting there because although only 18 people were executed, it takes a very long time for somebody to actually meet their sentencing. That you might be convicted, but there is years ahead of you as you're waiting for all the rounds of approvals to go through, as you're waiting for, you know, God knows what, maybe your state's politics change in that time frame and somebody might pardon you or not pardon you or you're up for a pardon. And it almost sounds like the act of being on death row itself is kind of like a terrible existential punishment in its own right, where you've been convicted of, of a crime You've been sentenced uh, to a death penalty, but then you spend the rest of like of a decade kind of hanging out in limbo, not knowing when the sentencing is actually going to go through or not. And that in itself almost seems like an entirely separate ethical dilemma where you kind of keep somebody in a state of psychological distress, not knowing that's exactly the, what's going to happen. Yeah. That's, that's the deterrent, the legal process, <laughs> the exhaustive... Uh... <laughs> legal process so yeah but yeah no i mean this you know again not you know the biggest existential question here or not even existential really but um i i think it's a reminder for for me it serves as a great reminder of the complexities of our um societies these days and how it, it is really difficult to um, to have an accurate understanding of all the variables that are contributing to things, but also how our oversimplifications, because that's what we do naturally as human beings, how that can lead to really like uh, mistaken frameworks, ethical frameworks, justice frameworks, whatever, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it, I think, you know, again, it, it, it touches on so many different ideas, free will, ethics, politics, economics right um so yeah um it's just a another perspective i guess on all these issues that we touch on every episode so it's all it's all connected you can imagine yeah. that it, we're all connected it's all linked so. to the coming ai apocalypse <laughs> where 
I, I mean, man, you, you heard of this like batshit crazy scenario that uh, the legal system is dealing with with um, an attorney who asked ChatGPT to write a position for him and ChatGPT like fabricated cases that it referenced in its like legal position paper that it generated for this attorney and the attorney used it. And I mean, it caused like a huge kerfuffle and like, you know, it's dramatic, but like back to the point we've been making for the past three episodes, like once this technology kind of scales a little bit more, like, like the mind fuckery that's going to be deployed onto our justice system. <laughs> like, Dude, I mean, so did, did you, did you hear about this? DeSantis ran political ads against Trump where he used uh, AI generated images of him uh, basically hugging Fauci. Like there was, so there was like a collage of six images, but three of them were blatantly AI generated. Like I, I think their <laughs> fingers were all fucked up. And you know, there's the text, the, <laughs> the text yeah, the in the white house yeah. was like Russian instead of English. <laughs> so, uh, but maybe some subliminal, subliminal uh, messaging there. But, uh, I mean, the, the, so they ran this ad and like, it's happening, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it, I mean, the, the 2024 elections are going to be the greatest shit show on earth. I think, <laughs> I think there's no question about that. We are in, we are in for something special and we'll be here on radius of reason covering every, uh, steaming pile of shit that comes out of that uh, election cycle. Should we try to get like a third party candidate on here? Like there's no way we can score Andrew like, Yang, man. Of, like Andrew Yang, no, dude, the forward no way party. In hell we're going to get Andrew Yang. <laughs> I'm talking like Come on, man. Uh, let's get whoever- His podcast, bro. Listen to me. His podcast gets barely any more views than ours. <laughs> <laughs> he should be thrilled to come on our program. <laughs> The American uh, Libertarian Party. Let's see who we can get from them. They're their presidential candidate, and, and let, let's just let's let's milk it. Let's see what happens. Let's get their take on the justice system. Oh, I would love to have a libertarian on. Ooh, I I would I, I think that would be great. If you don't mind me, if you don't mind like a bunch of yelling and screaming, and uh, yeah, th- chairs being thrown at the. At the cameras, I guess. Not yet. It'll be fun. It's... Yeah, we should. And you guys should uh, hit the subscribe button again if you haven't. Um, do all that. Help us out. We're growing. We are slowly coming for Joe Rogan. <laughs> Very slowly, but we're, we're coming. We are coming. Like and subscribe so. if you want to topple Joe Rogan's dominance of the podcast space. If you dislike Joe Rogan, you better like the Radius of Reason boys because they're coming for the top. We coming. Andre and Levon are coming. Okay, that's what we've uh, <laughs> that's what we've established. All right, well, uh, great episode again, Andre. We will be back again very soon. Uh, thank you for listening and take care. Be well. <laughs>